This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books and Environmental Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Brian Hamilton, your host today, and I'm very fortunate to be joined by Robert Polin. He is Distinguished University Professor of Economics and co-director of the Political Economy Research Institute at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. He's here today because he's partnered with famed public intellectual Noam Chomsky on an inspiring new book called Climate Crisis and the Global Green New Deal, The Political Economy of Saving the Planet. They wrote it in conversation with C.J. Polykernow, and it comes out today from Verso Books. Robert Poland, welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me, Brian. Now, when we were working to find a time for this interview and Dr. Chomsky realized his schedule was unforgiving, he told us to go on without him because, in his words, it's too important to wait. Now, he wasn't commenting on the importance of, of this program, of course, but, but on the state of the world. And, you know, I think many of us worried back in the spring, that COVID might sort of bury the climate crisis in in the public consciousness. Um, But now, come fall, that concern feels kind of a bit quaint. You know, we've kind of grown accustomed to the overlap of the fire season in the West and the hurricane season in the Gulf, kind of focusing media attention on the climate for for a few weeks every year. Um, And this year, we're adding to it, you know, like the very bad news out of Antarctica and President Trump's staggering (laughs) denialism and Scientific America making its first presidential endorsement in 150, 175-year history, you know, and, and, and all of that happened literally yesterday. <laughs> so I, I, wonder, I wonder, before we dive into the book, would you like to offer any reactions to the climate news that's, you know, grabbed headlines in just the first half of this month alone? Well, uh, that was a great summary, and the news is just absolutely devastating. I mean, it's it's not surprising in the sense that this is the kind of thing that climate scientists I've been telling us, and they're saying that we're operating within a nonlinear framework. There's uncertainty. Things could be more intense and could uh, start changing more aggressively than we anticipate. Uh, And I've heard that. And of course, I'm not a climate scientist, so that's really not my domain. Um, I, I hear those things, but then you don't really, I mean, at least I don't. I, I don't imagine it's all going to happen all that quickly, and then it does. Uh, so it only reinforces the, as, as Noam said to you, the urgency of doing and understanding how absolutely critical it is. Uh, uh, all of these things, uh, of course, you can't pin a hundred percent of all of these phenomena on climate change, but you can pin a very high percentage. Um, well, the Antarctic stuff, you can pin 100%. Uh, but in any case, what we are seeing is really the 
uh, acceleration of the of the nature of the emergency. It, it's not it's not an exaggeration to say that we are facing a climate emergency and that action has to be taken. A dramatic action action has to be taken. And uh, actually, we do not spend a lot of time in the book on issues around adaptation. Uh, you know, the fact that there are certain things we just can't control right now. So how do we uh, adapt people and, and make make it at least livable while we come up with a long-term solution? We spend a little time on that, but I probably should have spent more time on that. The the Green New Deal, as sort of a, a slogan or a phrase, has, has been around, kicking around for maybe a decade or so, and it's of course it's grabbed headlines in the last couple of years since the um, Ocasio Cortez and, and Markey resolution in 2018. But you know, you've been doing work that fits the mold of, of a Green New Deal for much longer than that. And, and I wondered if you could help a, a listeners just sketch out a path of that your work's taken to get you to how you're thinking today about the climate crisis. And I also wonder, you know, you do a little bit in the book. Explaining how orthodox economics, econo- excuse me, orthodox economics has related to the climate crisis and in kind of halting ways over the years, and how how, how your approach is sort of um, relates to to mainstream economic thought. Yeah, well, um, my background is, uh, I guess, in terms of my subfield, we'd say macroeconomics. So it's just you know the economy as a whole, uh, and then I also uh, got involved in issues around labor, issues around finance, and all of that's wrapped in a big picture, which I freely admit I come at it from a left progressive perspective, uh, which is not the mainstream in in economics. Uh, But the the truth is, and I'm I'm making a lot of confessions here, uh, (laughs) the truth is I was interested in these issues, but I had done exactly zero work on it uh, up until uh, I would say 2007 or, or thereabouts. And the reason I, I talked about doing it and I never did because I all had all these other projects and it wasn't my specialty. Um, but I finished a book in 2004 called Contours of Descent, which was about the macroeconomics in the U.S. and the, and the globe. And I actually put in chapter one that uh, I, I realize that I have a big deficiency in the book because I'm uh, I'm not talking about climate change. I'm talking about issues around economic growth, job creation, so forth, uh, and distribution, who gets what. But I'm not putting it in the context of the climate crisis. And so at that point, I, I put that in the literally in chapter one that I'm going to I'm going to start integrating that into my work. And even having written that and published it, it still took me about two years to get up to speed. So um, in a sense, I'm like a, you know eager amateur. I'm not really an environmental uh, economist in the traditional sense. So that does give me some advantages because I'm, my view is that, yes, the orthodox economics has dealt with this in a really insufficient way. The best example for that is the awarding of the Nobel Prize in economics two years ago to William Nordhaus, who is all, almost certainly the most prominent economist working on these issues of climate change. And his his perspective is really atrocious. I mean, I, I, again, this is not an understatement. I mean, in his Nobel lecture in December 2018, he's he, he makes the point, it's right in the lecture, that the optimal 
the optimal result is that we stabilize the uh, global mean temperature, the average temperature at four degrees Celsius above prehistoric levels, whereas the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the experts, uh, climate scientists, saying we have to stabilize at one and a half degrees, or, or we're facing, you know, dire consequences, and we see the dire consequences. But here you have William Nordhaus, the most prominent economist on these issues in the world, the Nobel laureate of 2018, who gives his Nobel lecture only two months after the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change is coming out with a report that insists that we have to stabilize at one and a half degrees uh, above uh, uh, pre-industrial levels. He's saying four is fine. Four degrees is fine. Uh, So that's, uh, you know, that gives you where I'm coming at. That is uh, dramatically different. Against the tide. You also, you, you worked in the Obama White House on, on the stimulus in 20, 2009 on green jobs, right? Yeah. So that's really kind of, I, I in a way, I, I got lucky as academics go. Uh, I think because <laughs> the, like the very first paper I did on this uh, was uh, commissioned by the Center for American Progress, which is this kind of mm-hmm. center left think tank in Washington. And um I was doing a big study, uh, but they said, we'll peel off a little part of it and just focus on this issue of jobs because we're, you know, we're looking at a recession. This was 2008. And what can we say as in terms of the green investments as a counterforce to the upcoming recession? So I did this paper with some coworkers here at UMass, and I thought it was okay, but um, I thought it was just another paper that I'd written. But the... Um, the Center for American Progress, because they're very wired in, in in Washington, and we're facing a recession, uh, they got this paper out, and it became, according to the New York Times at that time, they said it was the uh, blueprint for the green parts of the stimulus. And so that's uh, that became uh, an important document to, to really um, – think about how to do the green stimulus. And then I got hired as a consultant in the energy department once the green, the um, overall stimulus program passed February 2009. So I really was involved in a very interesting way for a couple of years in in pushing this agenda because the the, uh, Obama stimulus, um, it was called the um, American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, uh, about 12% of all the spending that was allocated, $90 billion out of about $800 billion was for green investments. So this was, uh, as far as I know, the most ambitious green investment program in the history of the world. Uh, it didn't, of course, didn't turn out as well as I would have liked, but there was some significant forward progress. And I mean, I, I read Adam Tooze's book this summer about the history of, of of the last ten years of economic history, and and in his retelling, you know, he says that Obama wanted more green jobs money for that, but you know, the, the politics didn't work out. Or, or in, in you reflect in this book that just the logistics of of having products projects that were ready to go um, to get the money out um, was 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 hard. But in the long run, the stimulus seems to have paid for itself. Is there a lesson there? The stimulus, I mean, generally speaking, beyond just the, the green parts, 
The stimulus uh, was mildly effective. It, it, it prevented a Great Depression, uh, we, which we would have had in the 19, comparable to the 1930s. And the green parts of the stimulus were also, on balance, effective. And I'm happy about that and proud that I made a tiny contribution. Um, it was not nearly as good as it might have been. And we can say that that was due to politics, uh, cer certainly by the... Um, in November 2010, when the uh, Republicans took back the House of Representatives, that was a real uh, barrier to any forward progress. But there were also self-inflicted problems. Uh, number one, as I think you, you just alluded to, um, what we did not do, and, and I'll say what I did not do, because it was my paper that they said was the, the blueprint, we didn't pay enough attention to how to get things out quickly, like very quickly. You know, the, the, the term of, of the time was uh, shovel-ready projects. Uh, when can you start digging, you know, get the, is, the shovels all ready to go? And we really didn't focus on that. And that really, more generally, in, in macroeconomic policy design, that is not a very well-thought-out problem, although it's extremely practical. Like, mm -hmm. you, ha you have a depression coming. Okay, we want to do some great things and we want to invest in important things that will have long lasting value. But is it going to get, are we going to get money out in two months or two years? Mm -hmm. uh, and I, there was not really adequate understanding of that. And again, I fault myself as much as anybody else. Um, so that was part of it. Um, the other uh, part where I thought the design on retro, in retrospect was not uh, a correct was it put too much weight on uh, private sector tax incentives. I'm in favor of private sector tax incentives, but uh, when you're facing a recession, especially, and you're talking about doing new innovative things, which green uh, building a green economy is and remains new and innovative, you really can't expect the take-up rate to be uh, as rapid as necessary. So what should have happened when it was... Uh, a much larger share of the overall 90 billion uh, being allocated, being uh, spent by the government, the public sector, as opposed to waiting for private investors to come along. Now, in, in some circles, or maybe we can call them echo chambers, um, the Green New Deal has become so popular, a concept that it sort of has started to seem like the obvious and only way that we'd respond to the climate crisis. And I'm all for that. Um, but but of course, that's not true. And, you know, and, and just a few years ago, there was a less less kind of socially justice inflected version of climate response. And so I, I think it's probably worth remembering that there are other options and and probably less desirable and remembering what, the, what that means. And so I, I wondered, you know, you know, what would an what would what would an effective but unjust climate policy look like? You know, we often yeah. hear about the catastrophic consequences of doing nothing in the face of climate change, but what would the consequences be of doing something, maybe even something that gets us to net zero emissions by 2050 even, um, but doing it badly? Yeah. Well, we have an obvious case in point here, which was what happened last year in France, uh, where a President Macron tried to impose a carbon tax, and they, he, he faced an uprising, the so-called Yellow Vest movement, where people were saying, Yes, of course, we care about the climate and the future of the planet, but we're talking about the present in my household this week. I don't have enough money for groceries. And so uh, by imposing the carbon tax, you're making me pay more for a necessity, energy, 
which means I'll have even less money for everything else. And so that's what caused the yellow vest uprising, which then Macron had to back back off on the carbon tax idea. And, you know, it wasted probably a year, two years, three years where serious action could have been taken. Now, you can say you just there are carbon tax, meaning basically we're going to raise the price of your purchases of of oil, coal and natural gas, uh, which are you know largely necessities that could work. You just keep jacking up the price uh, and eventually people aren't going to pay thirty five dollars for a gallon of gasoline, uh, whatever, you know, you could say whatever it takes. And, and that's one of the features of, you know, a more orthodox approach, such as uh, advocated by people like William Nordhaus, which is just uh, use the price mechanism because we will, markets are the most efficient ways to do things anyway. So jack up the price enough and then everything else will adjust. So but that is addressed because what you're then doing is imposing uh, increase ma- massive increases in the cost of living on, on vulnerable people because energy being a necessity, that means that people who don't have a lot of discretionary income or have less overall income are going to then spend a higher proportion of their overall consumption basket on energy, which means they're going to have less for everything else. Uh, the way to do it alternatively would be to uh, if you're going to use a carbon tax, then you get the revenues and you rebate the revenues back to at least the you know the lower half of the income distribution. But Macron didn't do that, and so the approach: carbon taxes keep losing, and Washington State uh, it lost because you know if you just say, look, this is what we're going to do, we're going to have a tax, and we need it for the climate to uh, reverse the the uh, damage we're doing. And not do anything else. It is a bad, bad policy intervention. The book's, you know, of course, mostly about the present and the future. Um, but there are several moments where you sort of mine history to find, you know, a usable past, as they say. And um, now, there's nothing in here about the actual New Deal, um, but uh, there is a lot, or a fair amount, about mobilization for World War II and federal R and D investment in the immediate post-war period. And why is that an instructive moment in history to look to? You know, when you said and you wrote to me, you said there's nothing about the New Deal. It actually hadn't occurred to me (laughs) that uh, that was uh, another oversight. And maybe if we do a second edition, I will put something in about the the actual 1930s New Deal, because there was innovation there and primarily around the Civilian Conservation Corps, Mm -hmm. which which was an effort, exactly an effort to invest in environmental protection. And, and do so in a way that creates jobs. So that's totally in the spirit of what I see to be the Green New Deal at present. The problem then, and maybe that's why we didn't, I, and again, I didn't do it deliberately, but uh, it wasn't at a large enough scale. The, the concept was very good. Uh, the scale of the investment on the Civilian Conservation Corps and other environmental initiatives in pre-World War II under Roosevelt was not large enough, which is why we went through the whole 1930s and we actually had not gotten out of the Great Depression. It was World War II that created this massive public uh, intervention to mobilize for war. And so the lesson there is, well, you know, when you really have to do it, uh, the U.S. proved that we could do it. 
uh, at that time, we mobilized roughly 25% of the economy on the war effort. And the government said, well, whatever it takes, we'll, we're not worried about piling up debt. We've got to win the war. And there was also huge innovations taking place, uh, innovations in aviation, uh, which was absolutely critical. And then, of course, we know about the development of the nuclear bomb. Mm-hmm. Uh, so all of those things were uh, within the context of World War II, led by a, a public investment and public policy. So I think the lesson there is that uh, mobilize uh, the public sector, uh, the federal government in particular, uh, get the financing to the scale necessary and and move forward on that foundation. There's, of course, still a role for the private sector, uh, but you need uh, much stronger leadership in the public sector. The, the other thing about the, why I like the term the Green New Deal, it does evoke, uh, obviously, Roosevelt in the 1930s. And the idea being that the Green New Deal or the New Deal uh, connotes something about uh, advancing equality within existing mm-hmm. institutions. We're not okay. It's important to to think about what we would like, you know, seventy five years hence in terms of a fair society and economy. But how do we get from A to B? And to get from A to B right now means we have to avoid a climate catastrophe. So we have to take massive action now within our existing institutions and make our uh, initiatives workable, viable. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm no expert in the, in the wartime economy, but this, every time I read these statistics, it's just so it's just mind blowing. I think something like the airline industry was smaller than the candy industry in the America before before World War II, and then yeah. after World War II, of course, it's a leading sector of the economy, and so yeah, yeah, miracles can happen. But also, with, but without you know, it was not taken over by public industry, but it was it was still you know remained private the whole time. And that was important yeah. to Roosevelt. But so yeah, it's fascinating. Um, well, we get to the heart of your book, and that's of course your framework for you know, how, how we're going to do this and from an economics perspective and the industrial and and financial policies needed to get the world to net zero emissions by 2050 in a just and equitable way. Um, and in, in the, some of the broadest strokes, your, the content of your proposals looks familiar. You put a lot of emphasis on transitions to wind and solar, um, you know, reversing deforestation, adding, you know, afforestation as the most effective way to, if we're going to talk about carbon capture, we should do it with trees first. Um, and then, uh, and organic agriculture is being, as you know, and, and is being really important. Um, but the means by which we get to these initiatives and, and the way we support them at the scale necessary, you know, you take us into the weeds of economics, a place where plenty of ardent environmentalists aren't terribly comfortable, myself included. And I never took an economics class in college and I've been constantly regretting, especially from the, from the macro stuff. I'm constantly trying to teach myself macro on like Wikipedia and Investopedia and it's, it's going slow, but if I have, you have a captive audience tonight. So I wonder if I could, if you could give me a crash course and a couple of the few mechanisms here that you place a lot of importance sure. on. Sure. Um, and, and, uh, some of them sound kind of arcane, but, but they, they look really powerful. Um, one here is this concept of a feed in tariff. Hmm. What's a feed in tariff, Bob? Yeah. So it's, it's a fancy term. And if I didn't s- explain it in the book, that's another deficiency of the book. You're, you're oh, I'm, just, I'm pretending to not know. I'm hoping you can teach us all. Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. So it's a, it, basically all it is, is um, that the government sets the price for uh, wind power, solar power, so that it, private investors know what they, they, you strip away the uncertainty that is generally associated with a um, private investment. I mean, you, you know, if I were to invest in um, in a candy store, 
mm-hmm. I don't I don't know who's going to come into the store. I don't know at what price they're going to be willing to buy my my uh, goods. So that's part of how capitalism operates. A feed-in tariff just says, okay, uh, here's the price. You have a 30-year contract, uh, and the government is going to set the price for solar uh, electricity. And uh, this is going to be a price at which we think you can um, keep your operations going and make some profit, but it's not going to be excessive profits because we're stripping away, exactly, we're stripping away the, uh, the, some of the risk that you're facing. So that's what a feed-in tariff is. That's all it is. Uh, another fancy way to say it, it's a, it's a forward contract, meaning that we are setting the price for electricity generated by, say, solar power. Not today, but, you know, uh, f- we're, we're setting it today for five years from now, eight years from now, and then it makes it easier for people to invest. And, and governments have put these in place in places oh, around yeah. the world? Oh, yeah. yeah. It started in the United States. The idea of a feed-in tariff started. A lot of the innovations uh, actually came out of California. And, and Jerry Brown, when he was first governor and uh, actively in, in committed around environmental issues in the 1970s. And, you know, California is almost, I mean, it's one of the biggest economies in and of itself. So when you have a governor that is... Uh, supportive of these things in California, you've got a lot of room to experiment. And, you know, for all of criticisms we may have with Jerry Brown, he, he definitely was uh, trying to introduce new ideas in order to advance an environmental agenda. So so that's what a feed-in tariff is. And it's really been uh, most effective in Europe. Uh, it has been instrumental in the developments in Europe where, you know, they operate at about roughly uh, 40% lower emissions per capita than we do in the United States. That's pretty good. You also do, you know, it might surprise people, as you say, you're a left progressive economist. You do have an important role for, for carbon caps and carbon taxes in here. So how do we do that justly? So a carbon cap would basically just say, this is how much by regulation we allow utilities to burn fossil fuels. And no more. <laughs> so mm-hmm. th- uh, another uh, technical term for that is uh, re- renewable portfolio standards. And a lot of states now have them that they say by you know 2040 that the electricity has to be 75, 80 percent, 90, even 100 uh, percent uh, renewable. So, for example, Colorado, one state where I've done a bit of work, uh, has a, a renewable portfolio that says that I think it's by 2040 that we have to be at 100% renewable electricity. Uh, So uh, that is a great uh, regulatory tool. The only problem is you have to make sure you enforce it. Uh, You know, know, because I did some work also in New York State and they had renewable portfolio standard for 2015. Well, they didn't hit the standard. There was a lot of fanfare when they introduced it. They didn't hit it, and then there was absolutely no publicity about this at all. Then they just set a new standard uh, for 2030. And so it's great to have these standards, but they're re- regulations and they have to bite. So I would say, yeah, let's say you have to reduce your use of fossil fuel energy by, let's say, 5% per year. And if you don't hit the standard, the CEO of the utility goes to prison. Yeah. Uh, I mean, really. You know, no, it yeah. jumped out at me when you wrote that on the page. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 
something like that, that'll get their attention. Uh, as it happens, if you look at the evidence from the, the Trump own energy department, um, on average, solar power, wind power, geothermal power, hydro are uh, at parity or cheaper than fossil fuel energy and nuclear. So why, why shouldn't these uh, utilities be investing in renewable energy? Uh, they need to. So that's, that's a um, carbon cap. And then a carbon tax is like what I was describing what they did in, in France, where you just say, uh, you know, a, a gallon of gasoline has so much carbon in it. So for all, for whatever percentage of carbon, you have to pay an extra 25 cents. And that starts to add up or, you know, depending on where you set the tax rate. The, the massive problem with the carbon tax is the problem that we uh, talked about with respect to France and the Yellow Vest movement. Uh, it's it's extremely unfair. It's unequal if you don't rebate the money back to people uh, because it way disproportionately impacts low-income people that have to spend a lot of their overall income on energy. So, uh, But it's easy to get around that. It's just say, okay, we, we raise a billion dollars through the carbon tax. We give $750 billion right back to the, let's say, the lower two-thirds of the income distribution. We save a third for investing in green energy. Um, and that way you are discouraging everybody from uh, buying fossil fuel energy, uh, but you also are giving them money to keep living and then mm -hmm. presumably to uh, help them start purchasing renewable energy. And you also, you show how that could be kind of a, a I won't say simple, but but an, an, at least an elegant um, macroeconomic way to redistribute wealth from countries that have you know, disproportionately benefited from burning fossil fuels to those that, that haven't. So when you say like, if everyone gets $60 the world round, that's yeah. going to go a lot farther in Kenya than it will in the US. Yes. So that would be, uh, yeah, a global carbon tax, which is a good idea. And right. It, yeah, it's very you, equal shares. Uh, you raise, uh, you know, I forget the number I had in the book, but I did some fairly careful calculations. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I say, okay, whatever it was, $300 billion. And everybody gets an equal share. So everybody gets $60. Now, you know, somebody who's a millionaire in the United States, $60 isn't even worth picking up if you saw it lying on the street. Whereas in Kenya, it's going to be, you know, 5% of your income for a year. That's not bad. Uh, so that's, a, yeah, a very simple, uh, it can be an effective tool for uh discouraging fossil fuel consumption and for uh, promoting a more equal society. And we got to talk about the Fed and, and help me out here. This is one of the things I constantly Google, but you know, the Fed has sort of a dizzying, its political valences shift quite fast over, over at least my, even my lifetime, right? That it's easy to see the Fed as, as, you know, as, as a villain for the left and in, in, in the pocket of wall street. But there's also been moments this year where the kind of the Fed felt like it was our only hope <laughs> um, in, 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 as far as the federal, as national institution, um, that could could do anything here. And you have a role for the Fed to play. What would that be in, in the Green New Deal? Well, your characterization of the Fed, I think, is fair in, in both things you said. I think it's fair to say that the Fed is largely a tool of Wall Street. And the Fed also uh, has basically saved us from economic calamity uh, over the last few months. It's done both of those things. And that's <laughs> exactly why, as a you know, we are facing you know, near-depression conditions 
But meanwhile, the stock market has been going up. How could mm-hmm. that possibly be? Uh, it only is because the Fed has bailed out the financial markets and they have the means to do it. So over, since March, uh, and we don't know exactly how much, but the Fed has pumped in in the range of $5 trillion into stabilizing Wall Street, giving out loans to uh, corporations. And uh, $5 trillion is about 25% of entire U.S. GDP. And they, <laughs> and they came up with that, in, you know, in the bat of an eye. <laughs> now, uh, and yeah, uh, some of it will get paid back. Some of it won't. But if we think about that magnitude and if we think about the, the levels of spending that, that I'm suggesting and, and other people have come up with similar numbers, uh, something like 2 to 3% of GDP to advance a green agenda effectively, and the Fed just pumped in 25% in a matter of four months. That, in other words, the Fed has the means to completely finance the Green New Deal without anybody barely noticing it. Uh, maybe there's arguments as to why it shouldn't be done that way in, t- in entirely entirety, uh, and I would agree with that. But as if they certainly have the means to finance a, a very large proportion of a Green New Deal and, and get the thing moving. Once the momentum is going, uh, the Green New Deal will be self-financing. In other words, it will be people will see savings in their pockets. I see savings. I have solar panels. I don't pay any electricity bill anymore. I have to have the money for the upfront investment to buy the solar panels and to get them installed. Um, and uh, I was able to do that in large part because you get a big tax benefit still, still under Trump. You still get it. I don't know how much longer if he's reelected, but um, that's the critical thing. And the Fed can, the Fed can, could play a central role here. I, and to the argument that, well, that this isn't the Fed's job, the new president of the um, European Central Bank, Christina Lagarde, when she first came into office in December, she said, the number one thing I'm going to focus on is climate change. People said, well, wait a minute, you're a central banker. What does that have to do with climate change? <laughs> well, that has to do with saving the planet from destruction. <laughs> uh, correct me if I'm wrong. I, the, the U.S. Fed has a dual mandate, right? To keep, is it to keep interest rates or keep inflation in check and to also support full employment? Exactly. Right? And, and, the, and the ECB doesn't have that. Lagarde doesn't have that same mandate. Um, full employment is, I think, is a phrase that it was a household word for, for term for most of the 20th century. And then wasn't when I was growing up. Um, what is full employment? Um, does it exist? Will it ever come back? And how would it fit in the Green New Deal? Well, yes, I think full employment is a kind of slippery term. Uh, I mean, I, I myself wrote a little book called Back to Full Employment. Uh, but, you know, on page one, I just said, well, I think we better define what we mean uh, <laughs> when we start talking about it. Uh, I think the simplest way to think about full employment is an abundance of, of decent jobs, good jobs. So that anybody that you know is able and willing to work could get one of them, and that would be a job that pays decently and that offers dignity and a and a safe workplace. Uh, so you know, then boiling that down into you know, details, of course, takes a while, but that's the basic idea. 
Uh, now, the Green New Deal, I think, is uh, not only fully consistent, but can be a, a, a powerful vehicle on behalf of full employment, because the Green New Deal means spending money to rebuild an entire energy infrastructure. So that means creating a lot of jobs, millions of jobs uh, here in the United States and everywhere. And uh, it's a myth to think that, oh, all these jobs are you know, just going to be for people who are like, you know, environmental uh, crazies and, <laughs> and, and, you know, scientists that have the latest scheme for, for solar or something. It's jobs for everybody. The most, the highest proportion of jobs in the Green New Deal are in the in construction, and then the second most are jobs in manufacturing, uh, and then we have jobs for truck drivers, we have jobs for uh, office workers, we have jobs for accountants, we have jobs for lawyers. Uh, it's across the board because it's you know it's it's building a whole new infrastructure uh, in a relatively short time. It will require mobilizing millions of people. And that means jobs. You, you do these careful calculations in the book. It's very accessible. It isn't, it isn't, it isn't a turn off at all, but you come up with the, the, a tally for the, the global annual investment in clean energy of $2.4 trillion mm -hmm. you know, every year. Um, and this is question is going to sound stupid, but is that a lot of money? You know, I've, I've been living through this period where this recurrent massive stimulus that we talked about, yeah. the, we have negative bond yields, which is kind of mind, mind numbing or mind confusing. And then, and then also, you know, this new trend in modern monetary theory is $2.4 trillion a lot of money. Do we need to, how, how should we think about that kind of sum? Well, that's a great question. It is not a naive question. Um, there's different ways to approach it. Uh, one way is just to say $2.4 trillion. That's a ah. lot. Of, yeah. <laughs> And that's often used as the standard, just like, or, you know, you can even say, you know, a million dollars. Hold my sure. God, that's a lot of money. Okay, so the, the, I think the, the fair way, the more accurate and e easy to understand way to scale this, to put it in perspective, is what is it as a share of overall activity in the economy? So the way we measure overall activity vary imperfectly. But at least it's there is, is GDP, gross domestic product, which is supposed to be exactly our indicator of how much every, all the money that is getting spent over the course of the year to buy things, buy goods, services, everything. So the 2.4 trillion amounts to about two and a half percent of global GDP in today's world. So you can still say that's a lot of money and it is because you still need to, $2.4 trillion. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, uh, another way to say it is, well, 97.5% of all economic activity can be on everything else besides building the Green New Deal. And so we don't have to think of it at the level of mobilization as was experienced in the 1930s. I mean, maybe if we don't do anything for another six or seven years, then we have to think about spending 25% of GDP and not doing anything else and putting people in jail that are going to violate the uh, renewable portfolio standards and so forth. Uh, but right now, the, the, the magnitude of the investments necessary is, of course, massive, but it is manageable. And on top of that, it is critical, again, to say it will create jobs. It will deliver lower energy costs. Uh, and a, a lot of the money that I propose spending goes to improve energy efficiency, uh, such as having LED light bulbs, such as having uh, much more efficient cars or better 
public transportation. All of those things save money. It's money that people can keep in their pockets, even if it didn't do anything to help emissions. It does help a lot to reduce emissions. You uh, you step into two internecine fights among environmentalists in this book. You step in kind of briefly and I think very sanely, but this is this is very uh, third rail stuff. Um, one is nuclear power. You know, and I had I had Kate Brown on the show to talk about her excellent book on Chernobyl, and suddenly, just like sharing that on Twitter, suddenly I got you know all these responses and emails, and it's it's uh, it's nasty out there. Um, so, what's what's the what's your clear headed vision of of the role of nuclear going forward? Well, um, you know, James Hansen, who's probably the most uh, renowned uh, climate scientist in the world, and has done more, I think, to to uh, advance consciousness around the need to stabilize the climate. So I have a huge amount of respect for Hansen. I don't know him at all, but I respect him. He, he's a proponent of nuclear energy. So, uh, you know, to be fair, if somebody of, of that level of accomplishment is a proponent of nuclear energy, then I, as a mere economist, <laughs> uh, I, I have to take that seriously, and I do. And Hansen's argument is, you know, yes, we are in an absolutely dire situation. So we have something that we know can work, nuclear energy. So why are we foreclosing that as an option? Okay, so that's his argument, and I, I respect it. Here's my counter-argument, though. My counter-argument is we have these technologies, solar, wind, geothermal, and efficiency, uh, that are cheaper than nuclear. Forget about whether they're safer. They are cheaper, uh, and they do not uh, entail the kinds of permanent uh, non-renewable um, uh, resources, in other words, uranium, uh, at the magnitude. And, and we know that there's problems of safety in terms of uh, the, the spent fuel rods, in terms of, uh, the, yes, the nuclear waste, in terms of the possibility of a meltdown like we had in Chernobyl and uh, Chernobyl and, and Fukushima in 2011. Uh, and there's the, the political risk that, you know, uh, you know nu using nuclear power for energy is not the same as using it for weapons, but uh, there is obviously some clear connection there. And you're inviting uh, all kinds of unsavory people uh, to figure out ways to use the nuclear energy, the more that it is widespread and becomes abundant, uh, to use it for uh, nuclear blackmail. So if you told me that there is no other way to uh, save the planet from climate change other than using uh, massive amounts of nuclear energy, then, okay, I would, I would take that very seriously. But in my reading of the evidence, we have an alternative. Uh, and I'm not against closing down all nuclear power uh, facilities now. I'm saying we have the existing ones that constitute about 5% of overall energy supply globally. Uh, so, okay, let's let them run their course, keep a very careful eye on them, but let's build out a system that whose foundation is safe, clean, and cheap. That's renewable energy and efficiency. The other topic that arouses much passions among environmentalists is the, is just the whether you can do growth environmentally and 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 folks that argue for zero growth or or what you call degrowth in the book um, 
and we see this, we saw this in 2008 and we saw this again this spring where you have a, a big recession and you see also emissions fall and people somehow, you know, there's some people that cheer that or only say, look, look, look. Um, and you don't, you do not cheer that. Well, actually I take the, the exact opposite lesson from the experience in the last year, because we have experienced close to a great depression, although hopefully it will not continue for a decade. Um, and emissions did go down. Uh, the pro projection is for 2020, we're going to see emissions go down in the range of six or seven percent. Now that's, that's something, but we need emissions to go down a hundred percent, not seven percent. Right. So, uh, you know, that is the fallacy here Ugh. that the degrowth, and I share a lot of the values with the degrowth proponents. Uh, but, um, if we, if we're going to get to a hundred percent, uh, zero emissions, Degrowth uh, only gets us if you if you don't change the energy system, uh, you will get a reduction in emissions by exactly the amount the GDP falls. So if you have a GDP falling by five percent, emissions will fall by five percent. Now we're already in depression territory. If we want to get emissions down by fifty percent, then GDP has to fall by fifty percent. So it's not really a solution. Um, Look, I, I'm not I'm not uh, a, a worshiper at the you know the cult of economic growth. Uh, I think we have to be more specific. Building a green economy means massive growth in uh, the clean energy system, but it also means massive contraction down to zero of the fossil fuel energy system. So yes, I'm for degrowth, degrowth of fossil fuels. Uh, I'm not for degrowth of of solar energy, I'm not for degrowth of uh, efficiency. So I, I just don't even think the term is really all that helpful. It's a it's a broad slogan. I was just in touch today with a, a PhD student in Italy who wants to interview me about this, and uh, he's a proponent of degrowth. I said, well, look, you know my position. If you still want to talk, okay, fine. But uh, I wish. And I told him this. We had an email exchange. I said, I wish people uh, on, of this uh, viewpoint would be a little more nuanced and, and not just insist on talking in broad generalities. Some things are it's wonderful. To, do we really want degrowth of the educational system? We want to have fewer teachers? Uh, I don't think so. Uh, do we want to have less opportunity for uh, daycare? Do we want to have less opportunity for elder care? No, we want to have those things grow. Uh, so is that degrowth or is it not degrowth? I just think we have to be much more specific. The nuance of the book is, is I think, one of its great strengths. And, you know, I think people on the left often get, you know, branded dogmatic and, and into their own, you know, circular firing squad and things like that. Um, but but this book is anything but dogmatic. There's a role for private enterprise there's a role for the state there's a role for big things and small things and different scales and and uh, mm -hmm. and you close you and dr trump's going to close with uh, a consideration of political labels and tactics and i wonder if there's examples of, of activism that you see as as the most promising and if there's you know mistakes that you'd like to see green new deal activists try to avoid well i think the most promising things uh certainly uh if we want to name one person it's greta thunberg Sure. Uh, this amazing young woman, I think maybe what she's 17 now, or uh, basically has captured the imagination of the entire world uh, by her commitment to an environmental agenda. 
just by taking a, a moral stance on it. Uh, and so, I, but I think she's also representative of young people, very young people, teenagers, uh, who have taken the lead and saying, you know, this is our world too. You know, there's not going to be anything left for us in 40 years. I mean, you old folks will be gone. So, you know, you don't, maybe you don't care. But <laughs> we do care. Uh, so I think that has been fantastic. So the, um, Sunrise Movement, the, the uh, leader of the Sunrise Movement was actually an undergraduate student here at UMass and got involved initially in the, um, uh, the uh, movement here in UMass for divestment. Uh, so, so people like her, uh, that's been great. The Climate Extinction Movement has been great. Uh, some things that have gotten less attention that I think are equally promising has been the um, the labor movement, the U.S. Mm-hmm. mainstream labor movement has gotten involved and is increasingly committed to advancing something that they feel comfortable with uh, as part of the Green New Deal. And their version, which is one that I strongly advocate, uh, gives a lot of attention to the transition for people and communities that are now dependent on the fossil fuel economy. They're, it's obvious that they're going to not be all that happy about getting their livelihoods taken away. And so uh, we have to respect that and say, okay, therefore, we're going to uh, make sure that part of the Green New Deal, a central part, is just transition for workers and communities so they don't have to feel the pain uh, of this, uh, what should be as an opportunity for all of us. They should also be able to see it as an opportunity and not feel as though their lives are getting stripped away. I hope that the weeks and months ahead will keep you busy uh, talking about this book with Italian grad students and others. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, but when things calm down a little, are, are there uh, current research projects you can give us a preview of? So uh, I'm extremely uh, involved right now on exactly Green New Deal projects. I was commissioned in, in nine states of U.S. states uh, to write studies. I've, I've written, finished, uh, two, uh, one for California, one for Maine. I'm finishing one for Ohio right now in Pennsylvania, Appalachia, West Virginia, Kentucky. Uh, I'm doing other states. I'm also doing, uh, one for the U S as a whole. I'm doing one for Greece. Uh, and we'll see what happens there. Uh, so, um, you know, I do work on other things, uh, including, uh, Medicare for all. Uh, and maybe I'll get back to that when there's more time. But um, right now, this my main focus is the Green New Deal, and you know I was very I felt very privileged to be able to work with Noam Chomsky, who is uh, obviously not an expert on this, but he is Noam Chomsky, uh, one of the great thinkers, um, and historically, and a man of incredible depth, uh, analytic depth and moral, uh, really moral passion. And uh, I've learned a lot from interacting with him. The book again is Climate Crisis and the Global Green New Deal, The Political Economy of Saving the Planet. Its authors are Noam Chomsky and my guest, Robert Poland, in conversation with CJ uh, Polly Cronow. The book comes out today and you can get your copy from Verso. I'm Brian Hamilton. This has been New Books in Environmental Studies. And thank you so much, Bob, for your time and for this book. Thank you. It was great talking to you.